Now, I think we've a really interesting conversation for you. I'm delighted to welcome to the show Aoife Hall. Aoife, great to have you on. Thank you. So uh, you spoke with a colleague of ours, Arthur O'Dea, uh, on the Off The Ball website last year. It's a fantastic interview. People should still uh, Google your name and it will come up and, and have a read. Uh, in effect, I suppose it, it, it uh, encompassed two subjects we don't talk about on the show all that often. One, bowling. Yeah. And two, endometriosis, which we certainly haven't talked about much in the show, but it is endometriosis uh, month. So uh, these are not two subjects that we've talked about, like I said, all that often. Could we start with bowling, if that's yeah. okay? That's no problem. So here's my base level knowledge. A few birthday <laughs> parties as a kid, mm. Kingpin, the Big yeah. Lebowski, and I yeah. think Fred Flintstone kind of liked to bowl as well. And that's that's kind of as that's kind of as much as I have to offer here. <laughs> Chuck him in there as well. <laughs> yeah, but um, geez, I mean, I think we've all had a go at it, so we can all appreciate how difficult it is. Uh, you are very, very, very good at this. From the age of twelve, you were on Team Ireland. The age of fourteen, U.S. schools were interested. At seventeen, you were the youngest Irish female bowler to score a perfect game. Uh, you've been a national champion. You've partaken in uh, World Cups. So. You know what you're doing. How did you get into this? Why bowling? Um, it came from my parents, basically. Um, when my parents started dating, um, my dad was the one who liked to go out for dinner or go to the pub or that kind of stuff. Or my mum was more into the non-alcoholic end of the date. And she brought him bowling. And from that, my dad really got into it. And so did my uncle and... Then my brother and I came along and we were kind of introduced to it and started in a junior club, which was Kit Kat Alley Cats in Exile Bowl, which became Harmerstown um, Superdome. And from there, it kind of flew. I was, I think, five or six when I was first in Bowling Alley. And they kind of wait for you to be six back then. Now they're younger, but back then it was kind of the age of six where you start throwing a ball and uh, kind of got hooked from there. It also played into, I've like great eye, hand-eye coordination. I played an awful lot of sports as a kid and hand-eye coordination, balance and all that kind of became my thing and bowling kind of, that's what you need for it. You know, it's physics, it's hand-eye coordination, it's accuracy, it's all of that. So um, yeah, I kind of got the bug, uh, won my first competition at 10, won all of the titles in the Bantams at 12 through Ireland, uh, went to my first Triple Crown at 12. And from there, I built a bowling family around the world. Um, I have friends that I've known from Scotland and England and Jersey and that since I was 12. I have friends from Australia, America, Shanghai, Singapore, everywhere in the world from bowling and from having that same passion and that same drive that I have. They're just living it up in a different country and living it up better in a different country, uh, bowling is quite behind the rest of Europe and the world when it comes to bowling. We're probably one of the only few countries left that were not sponsored or funded. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where my passion came from was just bowling isn't just a bowling sport. It's a bowling family and it's um, generations of families. My friend's father was bold for Team Ireland. He, he then played for Team Ireland and his children are now playing for Team Ireland. So it's that lovely generational thing that happens in a sport, I suppose, that I love. And yeah. 
we'll do anything to keep alive and keep going. Yeah. So talking about bowling on off the ball is a tick off the list of helping my sport. Yeah. Now that you mention it, so bowling not being funded, is bowling an Olympic sport? I'm asking ignorantly. It's not in the Olympics yet. Oh. We have tried previously and failed. And the PBA, which is the pro bowling format, um, which is all through Europe and America, it's mostly in America, they've been trying. And so a lot of our governing bodies, we four bowling governing bodies, and they are trying to amalgamate the formats of competitions to suit the proposals they've put forward for the Olympics. Um, amazingly enough, bowling is one of the most um, participated sports in the world, but for some reason, we're not granted access to the Olympics. Yeah, it's odd. Yeah, it is odd. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely some stranger pursuits at the games than bowling. <laughs> yeah, and it is a bit heartbreaking when you see different sports getting in in the same trial period as bowling trying to get in and they're saying, oh, well, it's not really an interactive sport. And I'm like, you've obviously never stood in a bowling centre when a major tournament's happened or a PBA because the atmosphere is unreal and you get drawn into every shot Mm. and I'm kind of looking going, not interactive. You could say the same about skateboarding, you know, so why why is that getting in and we're not getting in? Mm, That's strange. All right. You mentioned there you had a natural aptitude and good hand-to-eye coordination. I presume hours and hours and hours and a misspent youth as well. Um, <laughs> I think of that natural ability. Anyway, I played so many sports, hockey, everything. So hand-eye was just a given. Was there, yeah. But with bowling, yeah, because I've been bowling since I was six. Um, there's a lot of muscle me- memory. There's a lot of like uh, repetitive movements. There's like the accuracy is like the lane is 60 feet long. Um, you're looking to hit a six tenths of an inch with your target. Um, you're looking to repeat that. Um, it's massive challenges and it's there's massive physics and there's massive um, muscle memory and repetitive form and strength and conditioning. And it's actually probably 90 percent mental more than I know it's very physical to watch, but it's a 90 percent um, mental game mm. that bowling is, which I don't think people appreciate when you're going for a party and you're having alcohol, like, you know, we've the same um, drug tests and everything that tennis or rugby or any of the other sports would have because um, amazingly enough, marijuana is something that they used to use in the sixties for bowling to relax the muscles and take away the anxiety and stress yeah, before competition. I'm, I'm sure. And gets I mean, the swing going. So yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and is, so it's interesting. The terminology is even slightly alien to me. So you do call it a swing. Is the yeah. technique fairly uniform? If I went to watch the World Cup event in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. would I see all manner of different techniques? Some who yeah. bowl very fast, some who have lots of spin, because I would associate a good bowler with having this nice bit of curl. It will start out, say, a right-hander to the right and suddenly spin back in and crash into the middle of all the bowls. Is that like, does everyone bowl that way or is there is there no right way of doing it? Um, everyone hopes to bowl that way. <laughs> So it takes a lot of uh, practice and it takes a lot of breakdown of your game. So like it's there's a lot of it's a lot of physics. So there's a lot of stuff to do with ball choice, what way your ball is drilled, what oil pattern is down on the lane, you know, how the ball is reading that. How are you reading it and where you're moving your feet to your target to? So there's a lot of physics breakdown in, in, in the mathematical aspect of it and the reaction and the viscosity of the oil and all of this kind of stuff. But yes, like a lot of the bowlers, it's a four or five step approach. It's about the swing, getting back up and high, not too high, a controlled swing per se that allows 
your the the your power or your energy to transfer from the arm and the ball down onto the lane and to carry that energy from the ball to the pocket because you can throw a great ball but if the energy isn't there at the end you're not getting that hit in the pocket and you're not getting to carry with the pins mm. i presume I, when you're in a, a flow state you must feel almost like completely at one with the ball and the wood and just the, the slightest twitch of a of a finger or a movement, you know exactly how it's going to translate. I would say you get into those lovely states where yeah. it's all just uh, the minutiae are, are, are very kind of tangible to you. Yeah, it's that nice adrenaline curve peak uh, zone where you don't even hear a pin drop. You're just in that lovely zone. You step up onto the lane. You know your footwork's good. You know your, your hand position go- is good. You know you're on the right ball choice. And it, you just get into this rhythm Mm. And, and that's what it is. It's a rhythm where everything just flows and it's nice, relaxed, comfortable. You're not having to try. And, you know, the minute you let that ball go, it's a strike. Or, you know, the minute you let that ball go, you've pulled it and you're like, oh, please, have pulled it enough that it runs to the Brooklyn. So you're, you're, you do learn and it's, it's that feedback in the body that gives you that feedback that allows you as a bowler to know the feeling that you have in terms of the shot. And then it's all that work you've done in practice and it's knowing the, 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 the lane breakdown, knowing your equipment yes. to know how you can move then. And it's, it's about being ahead of the move. And this is something we all are still working on. Everyone I bowl with being ahead of the move so it doesn't catch you. you if you're going for that 300 perfect game, all strikes, you have to be ahead of the move. You have to be watching the pins. You have to be watching the pinfall. You have to know how the ball is moving. You have to know how the oil is breaking down, where it's transitioning. And you have to know, right, I need to move. And I know I need to move two boards left of my feet. I need to move my arrow forward. I need to move a 2-1 move, one at the arrows, two at the feet, whatever it is. Mm. And it's about being sharp on that. And that's the bit COVID's actually kicked our arses with because we've all become less sharp on our moves and less sharp on reading and trusting our bodies and trusting what we're doing. But yeah, Mm -hmm. there is that lovely Zen when you get in and you're gone and you can see it in bowlers when they're your friends and you know them, you know, they're in their zone, you know, they're gone, you know, you're going to have to work to get there. And it's about working to get there without overworking and chasing, because if you get into chasing with bowling and chasing scores or chasing someone's form or whatever it is you're gone because it's not about the other bowlers it's about you in that lane and yeah. so it can be it's a very individual sport but there's a very team sport because if i i'm in my zen and i'm bowling lovely and i'm with my doubles partner who i'm best friends with off the lane i know how to talk to her and get her into her zone and then we're both gone and then it's good luck god bless you're not catching us so one of the other reasons we want to speak to you is it's Endometriosis Awareness Month. And like I mentioned, you had an amazing interview with Arthur O'Dea on the Off the Ball website last year. Uh, endometriosis is, uh, I mean, in so much as I've read about it, seems to be uh, a diagnosis where you can have no symptoms or you can have the most chronic, unbearable symptoms and probably everything in between. And uh, your story, you seem to have, you, you experienced both really in that it was only yeah. in your late 20s when symptoms started, but when they started, they really started. Yeah, they, when I, uh, so obviously normal, well, actually not normal uh, periods, but um, we women don't talk about it. It's a period and we don't go into the details of it. So it was only up into my late 20s, I literally started passing out um, from the pain um vomiting you name it from the pain my body just trying to get rid of everything out of that 
space that I could swell up with the period. And from that, ending up in hospital in Scotland where they did tests and they found that at the time I had, um, they didn't stage it, but they basically diagnosed the endometriosis, but they also found cervical cancer at the time. So I ended up coming back to Ireland. And when I came back to Ireland, um, I came back with my papers from Scotland, as you do, when they discharge you with something like that. And they handed me over to my parents, even though I was in my 20s and because I was a medical risk in their eyes, which I didn't understand at the time. And I went for an operation with a, a surgeon who was leading out on endo in Ireland. And I was within her first three months of doing the laparoscopic procedure in Ireland. And I woke up from that operation and I couldn't I couldn't physically stand up straight and the pain had only gotten worse and um, the bleeding hadn't stopped. And I went for um, a second opinion because my father believed me and he knew me. I don't I don't I have a very high pain threshold. I've I've competed in competitions with blood pumping it in my hand. I've competed in competitions with a grade three tear in my quad. And I've continued to the end and then dropped. So he knew when I was talking pain, it was pain, pain. Um, and I had the second operation um, within, it was under four months. And they recommend you don't do a uh, laparoscopic seizure. It should only be a max. And this is on emergency. It should only be six months. It shouldn't come under a six months gap between two, sur- two surgeries at that level. And when he went in, the surgeon found that not only had the procedure not been done correctly, they had used an um, ablation, uh, which is burning a vendor, which pushes it deeper into the abdominal area. Um, they'd also left endo and they had left cancer cells. So that operation saved my life. Um, at the time, they told my parents, they didn't tell me that I would have had under six months to live if that hadn't been rectified through that surgery. From that, then I kind of went off and I ended up back in, had another surgery a year later. From that, then I got referred to a specialist and he diagnosed me with cervical stenosis and endo stage four. Um, he then sent me off to his team that he was handing over to. They did another, I don't know how many surgeries. They then tried to offer me <laughs> fertility treatment um, in a way to quieten down my endo, which with all uh, research um, would tell you that doesn't work. Um and at that stage, I'd started to kind of get a bit of autonomy for myself. I was starting to get annoyed with people trying to tell me how I was feeling or not feeling in my body, trying to tell me to just take more medication. There was all of this kind of like, I don't know, I get where the end of warrior comes from because you hit this wall where you're just like, enough is enough. You're not listening. You know, I'm doing my own research. I'm, fi- I'm finding this online. Can you explain this or talk me through this? And they weren't able to have that conversation. Mm. And what was even more scary is I'm coming from a medical background. So I'm looking at these people going, come on, you know, we speak the same language. Why can't you have this conversation? And then um, it got to the point where they were trying to, they were treating me with, um, Deep of air, which is basically shutting my system into menopause. 
And I had this massive brain fog. Um, I was in the car trying to drive to my best friend's house, which I've driven to since I, like, you know, I've been going to her house since I was 12. And I had to ask her to give me directions to her mum's house. And I went, this is ridiculous. This is, this is insane. This is destroying my life. Um, I'd had to step out of college numerous times because of operations and um, not being well enough to do the level that you do for a level eight or a level nine in UCD. So it took me longer for that. And then I just hit a wall and was having a conversation with my um, friend. Her sister works in Tala Hospital. And she said, have you not heard of this amazing, you know, surgeon woman? And I went off and did my own little bit of research as I normally did. And I came back and I was like, can you get me in? Can you get me an appointment? And I sat with her and she went through my history. It was only when I, when I sat with her and went through my history, I suddenly realized at that stage, I think I had seven operations and I still wasn't right. And I was kind of running out of space for keyhole on my tummy and how many times can you cut through my belly button and you know how many times do I have to step out of a European championships or a world championships or a world cup or a European singles because of endometriosis and I, I, I was getting really really annoyed um, and then she sent me on this journey of proper fundamental research that she used so she had that um medical conversation with me as a peer saying have you read this research what research did you read and we had that lovely flow of well this is what I was looking did you see this in Australia did you see this in New Zealand there's this new information coming in have you heard of Kathleen King she is the head of Endometriosis Association of Ireland she's a massive powerhouse and voice for us would you be willing to you know speak and talk at the conference your physio background you've had these operations and at the time I was like whoa I'm not ready for this like I'm I'm still trying to swim through my own storm and um, but come back to me so then I had the operation the eighth operation with her the January and she did that in the coon and she came back up to me when I woke up and she had her laptop with her and when I saw the laptop, I knew. I was like, here we go. Sorry. And um, she take showed me. Yeah. No, Eva, take your time. It's very personal and it's very difficult. She showed me my scans and she went through everything with me. And she gave that respect that I knew what I was looking at because I have that training. And she had the conversation with me, basically explaining she didn't understand why they had offered um, fertility treatment. They didn't understand. She didn't understand why um, they did so many operations and the damage that they caused. Um, because at the time I had uh, damage on one of my nerves from, I couldn't feel anything on the right hand side of my tummy from one of the operations. And um, she kind of justified to me that I wasn't going insane. And, hmm. um, and she just said, we need to take it out and we need to take it out to save you. And I know you want babies, but it's quality of life and life over that. And, you know, she let me go off and she let me think. And then she was looking at doing the operation in March, but 
her findings from the operation, like we'd booked in the operation for the hysterectomy in the March. And from that uh, January up, she then also was like, it's not just your womb, it's in your fallopian tubes. When your ovaries is destroyed, it's into your bowel, it's on your bladder, it's on your anterior pelvic um, wall. It's, you know, we're, we're kind of having to look, is it gone any, elsewhere? Has it gone to your liver? Has it gone to your diaphragm? You know, is it starting to progress and up anywhere else in the body? So I had to go get another MRI. I've had so many MRIs and mm. x-rays. It's insane. Um, I always say if they know you in the hospital, you're in trouble. Like the guys in the beacon knew me for bloods and x-ray and MRI to the point that they'd be like, hello, Aoife. And mm. they were showing me pictures of their dogs. But um, that operation kind of changed my life in the sense that it took me, though, till the December from the January to get in for the op because for some reason endometriosis surgery in Ireland is seen as elective for women which absolutely baffles me if somebody's in pain and it's destroying their organs how is that elective to have that surgery how is it elective to have a laparoscopic procedure to diagnose and then from that point is the gold standard for treatment of endo. So how is that elective? You know, I had to wait till the December because she had to ask another surgeon, a bowel specialist and a general uh, surgeon to come in on my surgery. It took till the December 2019 for that to be uh, sorted. And they had to pull me into Tal Hospital because it was the only place suitable between equipment and the specialists that could do the operation and I woke up after the operation I was doing for I don't know six eight hours I was marked up for stoma bag right and left at the time I'd been in with the stoma team I'd met the stoma care nurse I'd met the oncology team I'd met the, the just everybody and every anyone and she was brilliant that way because she was proper multidisciplinary in her approach and I went down for the surgery, kind of, at that point, I, I, I was physically wiped out. I'd been bleeding for a year and a half. Um, all treatment medication-wise had stopped working. I wasn't able to take any of the hormone replacement stuff. My body has just decided it was done with it. I'd weaned myself off all the medication I'd been on because at one stage I was on morphine, I was on Targan, I was on amitriptyline, all in one day with Salpidol thrown in for good measure. Mm. Um, and through amazing love through acupuncture and different things I figured how to get off them but that was back in 2017 but waking up from that operation was the first time that I'll never forget kind of waking up and just dropping my hands down to check had I got a stomach bag and I didn't and I was kind of like okay now I can go back to sleep and I remember like obviously my my now husband and my mum that were absolutely petrified because they've been told I had a 50-50 chance of waking up from the op because it was that complicated. And um, I remember waking up and just thinking, I don't have any pain. Mm. I don't have that endo pain. There's pain and then there's endo pain. And endo pain is, it starts small and then it grows and it kind of comes from your toes or the center of your belly button and it just takes over the whole body. But that little niggling ache that was always in the background was gone. And it was like, 
you kind of I kind of found myself doing this top to bottom check, you know, like you normally do for for a physio check. And mm. I was like, no, I, I can't feel it. And it was yeah. that normal surgery recovery pain. And I was like, I can handle that because I know medication will work on this pain. I know this pain will dissolve and disappear within six weeks. Yeah. And I know there's an end in sight to this pain. It all sounds just harrowing, I have to say. In, in those years where you were dealing with symptoms, and I know, for instance, at that World Cup in Las Vegas, your father had to fly out to try and help you. Um, and painkiller, the painkillers you were on certainly weren't allowed during competition mm. because of anti-doping regulations. For you, was were you in pain like constantly all month, every month, or was it just around periods, or did it vary, or... You know, did it, did it change over the years? It changed. It evolved. So it started that it was only around the period. So it would be that three, four day lead up to the period. You'd start feeling it and then it would kick in and it would take you out. It would take your feet from under you. And then it would take a week after for that to go. So you'd really right. only be getting a week or so without it. But towards the end and towards that last operation, it was pain every day. It was pain waking you at night. You couldn't sleep. Um, you know, it was that whole thing of if you went to work, you came home and you went for sleep because your body just couldn't handle it. Mm. Um, it was that whole exhaustion, emotional drain kind of. And also that mental health bits. And we still haven't fixed that. Like there is no follow up for, you know psychology or, or grievance counseling or anything following a hysterectomy for endometriosis i'm lucky that i have a family that are great with all this stuff and there's training in our family for that but there's others that aren't as fortunate as me there's others that don't have that we like there it's that whole it it is it, it, it that pain that end of pain it just overwhelms you and it's that fear of this is really serious for me and no one's listening. Yeah. And if no one's listening, how can I get help? And it comes back to that whole thing that was in the story, that woman, uh, Laura Newell, she was in that cycle where she was in massive pain. She was trying to get help. She ended up on the pain meds that every single one of us endo warriors is on at some stage. And it's not an addiction because they come from a specialist prescribing them and it's, or it's over the counter that's controlled. It's that waiting for somebody to do a laparoscopic and go, it's endo, and this is the path we have to do to treat it. And the surgery that she underwent is the exact same surgery I underwent. The only difference is I survived and she didn't. It's it's that whole, that's the, it's, it's a pain thing, but it's also a mental stress thing that comes with endo because you're not being helped, you're yes. not being listened. And how do you get somebody to listen to you if, you know, if a medical professional is sitting in front of you and you're telling them everything and you've kept your diary and you're showing the pattern, you're showing the repeat, you're showing, you know, this is the research I've been looking into and this is whatever, what do you think? And they sit there and they don't know because they haven't been upskilled in it. Like, where do you go from that? Most people give up. And do you feel in this country we're behind other countries? Massively behind. We are massively behind. <sighs> like, it's a nine-year waiting list to be diagnosed with endometriosis in Ireland. 
it's nine not. years for from if you, the minute you present in a GP saying there's something wrong with my period, I have excessive pain or I'm bleeding excessively. It's nine years to diagnosis of endometriosis. And, and is that through the public health care? Like if you if you can, doesn't if matter. Look, doesn't matter. Give and take about six months or a year. doesn't matter. It's all to do with who you sit in front of. So you could be very lucky or you could be very, very unlucky. Yes. And you can be very lucky that you have somebody in your family that knows what endometriosis is and has the voice for you. Yeah. Or it can be that nowadays, which I think is amazing, and um, there's pros and cons to Facebook and all of that. But the pro mm. of Facebook is there's all these groups now that are endometriosis awareness groups. Um, New Zealand, Australia, they're gone miles ahead of us. They're miles ahead of us in all our physio bits. So it doesn't surprise me they're miles ahead of us in women's health and, and all of that. The UK are miles ahead of us, which shouldn't be the case. They have multiple designated centres just for endometriosis, diagnosis and treatment. Ireland have just this in 2021, I think it was, uh, dedicated that the Coombe will have that um, set up. Now, uh, the specialist that I was seeing in Tala has that running already, but it's not getting the recognition. So it's down to, I I, I don't know, what do you do? Like, as I said, you know, Endometriosis Association of Ireland has Kathleen King singing, screaming and being a great advocate for us. But if the powers that be that can help don't listen Mm. where do we where do we go what do we stand like there's women in ireland going to bucharest to a specialist over there that links in for surgeries that they would be waiting for in ireland i was um deemed a p1 or the highest risk for waiting for my surgery and i still had to wait from the january to the december i i i don't like to think of what would have happened if I didn't have that advocacy from the specialists I was dealing with, like where I'd be or, you know, mm. it's, 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 it's just, it's women's health in Ireland. It's not given enough funding. There's not enough female gynies in it. Um, there's a lot of men and with all respect you, unless you have had a period and you know that pain and then someone comes along and explains it worse pain than that. You know, it's not for lack of empathy, but it's that whole if a woman comes to you and reports that her period has changed and the pain is excruciating, they rule out cancer and then they stop. It's like, well, what about endo? Endo can affect every single organ and tissue in the body and it destroys the tissue that it, 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 it gets into. And um, yeah. Yeah, God, that's awful. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm so sorry to hear about your experience. It's just, it's just I'm, awful. I'm, I'm okay now. I've, I've had time and I have, I'm blessed with family. I have three aunts of mine, my, my mom's sisters, who are great role models. They never had children, be it for whatever reason, endo or whatever, like, and they've shown me that life isn't as much as you'd love to have children, but it, it, life doesn't end just because you don't have children. Of course. They, yeah. have, they have had powerful um, careers. They go skiing. They have a house in Mallorca. And, you know, they, they have these amazing lives where they travel and they all have three dogs and a cat. And, you know, their, their life is full and they yeah. have me. And they've shown me that 
you know, okay, I might need to have a child, but I'll be driving my Mercedes that only has two seats. So it's okay. <laughs> you would be entitled to be both angry and sad about this every day if you let yourself. Yeah, but I think then you lose. I think you either have to be a victim or survivor with endometriosis, but like everything. So if I'm a victim to endometriosis, I don't go to work. I sit on my sofa. I feel sorry for myself. If I'm a warrior survivor, yes, I have days that I have to give in. But on the other days, I'm gone and I'm living it up and I'm going to work and I'm going bowling and I'm training and I'm doing what I want to do. And it's getting that balance when you're in the middle of it, because I know when I was in the middle of it, it was really hard sometimes. Yeah. But I also know when I was in the middle of it, I felt better if I went for that walk or if I just went up to the bowl, if I did that physical bit, my body thanked me for it. So if you give in fully, you're, you're, you're giving it too much room where if you kind of come at it, be it through diet or sport or fitness or whatever it is that you do, I think you're going to win at it. You know? Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on and talking. So honestly, Aoife, and uh, we wish you well in life with the bowling certainly as well, thank and you. hopefully raising awareness for endometriosis month as well. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, well, yeah, we wish you well. Thanks a million. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for having me. And thanks for letting me talk about bowling and helping the world <laughs> out there.